Holiday House Books for Young Readers, Peachtree Publishing Company, and Pixel and Ink present Jay Hostler, author and illustrator of Santiago, Santiago Ramoni Cajal, artist, scientist, troublemaker. In conversation with Holiday House Associate Marketing Manager for School and Library, Darby Gwynn. We know that our brains have incredible power. They help us to smell, have memories, and make decisions. All very scientific. But many people don't know that the father of neuroscience and Nobel Prize winner for medicine, Santiago Romoni Cajal, was actually driven by his unstoppable dreams of becoming an artist. Hi, I'm Darby Gwynn, Associate Marketing Manager for School and Library. And today, for the guest book, I'm talking with author and illustrator Jay Hostler about his new graphic novel, Santiago. Santiago Ramoni Cajal, artist, scientist, troublemaker. Jay Hostler is a biology professor at Juniata College and a cartoonist, devoting much of his time and thought to providing compelling science comic books that focus on natural history, evolution, and insects. Jay introduces young readers to fascinating worlds that often go unnoticed and unappreciated. His first graphic novel, Clan Apis, or The Way of the Hive, won a Zeric Award. Since then, he has created several comics and graphic novels. His newest graphic novel, Santiago, has been called well-researched and packed with tongue-in-cheek hijinks by Publishers Weekly and is an American Booksellers Association Kids Indie Next Pick. Hi, Jay, and welcome to oh, the guest book. Hello, Darby. It's so great to be here. I'm not sure I can <laughs> live up to that intro. My goodness. Well, jokes on you. You live with him all oh, the time. No, he's actually unbearable. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't we jump right in? Okay. So how did you first learn about Santiago Ramoni Cajal? And why did you want to bring his story to a graphic novel? Yeah, so I was in graduate school. And, you know, when you're in graduate school, you have a, a graduate committee, a group of faculty who sort of direct and guide your, your work, one of whom was a woman named Sunny Boyd. Um, and Sunny introduced me to Santiago Roman y Cajal's um, book, Advice for a Young Investigator. So Cajal was a Spanish scientist at a time when German, French, and British science were like the hallmarks of Europe. And he wanted, you know, he wanted to stoke that fire in Spain as well. And so he wrote this book, about what it means to be a scientist, right? And so it's pretty short and I really loved it. It was really, really helpful in terms of focusing me on, on what I wanna do. And, and then about a year later, well, no, two years later, I, I wound up seeing his uh, memoir, right? Which I thought was kind of interesting because a 600 page memoir of a Victorian scientist, it's not typically something you get, right? And so yeah, I started reading that and, he spends a lot of time talking about his youth. And what was really surprising was that as a youth, he wanted to be an artist. There was no aspiration to be a doctor or a scientist. He wanted to be an artist. And so uh, to take this guy who inspired me as a scientist, but who as a kid wanted to be an artist, uh, at the same time that I was sort of struggling with that duality, right? Because while I was in graduate school, I had a a daily comic strip for the newspaper at the at, at the college, and I was doing science. And here was a guy who was sort of straddling the same fence, um, and that 
became a really compelling connection for me. So that I've been looking since about 2003, really, for a way to tell the story um, that wasn't just a, a biography or a straight up biography, right? Because he wrote a memoir, 600 pages long. Uh, you know, I mean, what more can I actually say about that? And so um, I eventually found the way. And that was focusing on what he did as a child and how that affected him as an adult. Yeah, I think the graphic novel format really fits that really well. And what was the research process like for you? Was it just those two books as your main ones? What else did you do? Yeah, so that's, I, I, I'm very flattered when someone says, well, research. The truth is that uh, I pretty much tried just to tell Santiago's story, right? So his memoir became uh, my Bible for the book. And now one of the, and obviously I read other um, biographies that were out there. Um, a couple of them are pretty good. A number of the older ones really are just another author taking his memoir and then reformatting it and tucking in a few extra historical contextualizations, et cetera, et cetera. So, and, and authors will tell you, and, and I experienced this myself, Cajal's not exactly the most reliable editor of his life. I mean, he gets dates goofed up and they're a little... But for me, it wasn't so much about those types of particulars as much as his spirit, right? The, the, the lens through which he saw and approached the world, which I think that uh, he captures pretty effectively in his memoir. And what made it really easy, I think, for me to imagine ways to tell a kid's story about a neuroscientist, which is not, you know, not your typical uh, uh, YA fair. <laughs> Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, especially because you have it right there in the in the subtitle with troublemaker. Like he really is such a troublemaker. And you really took these wonderful moments throughout his life that he really went on these adventures. And I think it it really does lend itself to telling this sort of story to kids about how things can change as you go. Yeah, And, and so, that, you know, I mean, for me, the, the troublemaker part, that was actually a really important part because... I'm a pretty goody goody, right? I'm very much a rule follower. I uh, can relate. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. So, um, but at the same time, how many times have we watched those kids who just say, I don't care, I'm going to do it, you know? And so you watch them sort of with fascinated awe that they would, they would think about breaking the rules or walking on the grass when they're not supposed to. And, and that was what Santiago was for me, this guy who, was sort of unbridled. And what was interesting about his trouble uh, was that uh, it was fueled by something other than a desire to be bad, right? So we, we see characters in literature where it seems like their only reason for being naughty is, is to be naughty because, you know, he had, he had a reason for it. He wanted to build things. He wanted to make art. He had to sneak materials to build his homemade cannon. He had to, you know, had to make homemade paint by scraping paint off the wall of a church. You know, I mean, there was a reason why he did this stuff. There was a reason why he broke the rules. And um, now, adults didn't always respond super favorably to his reasons. Right. Um, but you can't help but watch the kid and just be totally 
I, I totally admire his drive. He was unrelenting uh, and Me ultimately successful, too. you know? Yeah. And just touching on the canon for a minute, the homemade canon was, I think, my favorite part of the whole book. And his homemade gunpowder, that whole situation, wild, truly wild. He, he cooked that on the roof of his house <laughs> so his mother wouldn't see him. I think that's the story that he tells. Yeah, I mean, oh. it, there's there's nutty stuff. Like, there's a bunch of stuff I couldn't put in. Like, he went to boarding school, and I can't remember if he found a pistol or he got some money and he purchased a pistol. But imagine this middle schooler running around with his brother and a pistol in a major city. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's also a very different world. But yeah, the, the canon story for me is was one of those sort of quintessential moments because uh, the canon sort of represents this, this point at which his uh, interest in science, you know, the, the concocting of the, of the, uh, the gunpowder, the building of the cannon in such that it can withstand the blast. But then the attention to detail that he had, the fact that it was, you know, he sanded the inside of that barrel Super duper smooth. I mean, that to me is artistic, right? It, it's this point at which he was both the scientist and an artist. And um, in this case, the, the result of that collaboration was quite explosive. <laughs> I see what you <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'll be uh, here all week, folks. <laughs> well, uh, I want to jump because we did kind of talk about his mom there for a second. And yeah. I really did find the relationships between his both of his parents and him to be just like so complicated and so so real in their own kind of way. Uh, his dad was such a hard guy, but his mom really seemed to have his back. And I know we talked before sort of about how she was sort of her own sort of re rebel. Uh, what was it like building that part of his story? And can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, it's tough because um, Santiago's relationship with his father was, was, as you said, complicated, as with his mother as well. But, you know, let's be honest, his father beat him. Uh, his father, in the way he handled him and his brother, as youth, it, we would categorize that as child abuse and not just mild child abuse. I mean, he used cudgels at one point to discipline him. So, you know, you, you look at it through maybe our eyes and you're like, oh my God, I, he would have to want to just get away from his father no matter what. And he, and he did run away a couple of times. But his writing as an adult, he shows great admiration for his father. I mean, his father walked 200 miles to Barcelona to become a doctor to better provide for his family. I mean, so... Cajal is capable of, of compartmentalizing those elements, which I would find very difficult to do, right? It would be very difficult yeah. to pull those apart. Likewise, um, his mother, she had to sort of play two roles too. And this is a Victorian woman, frankly. She's clearly got a husband who's pretty strong-willed and domineering. She's got to play him, right? Uh, so she went along with forbidding uh, Santiago from having art tools, right? She supported that. But she did little things, right? The Cajal hints at in his biography, like letting them, letting him and his sisters read her uh, romance novels that she kept hidden. You know, like I got, I had the image of a footlocker. I don't know if that's accurate, but had it hidden in a chest someplace <laughs> in their house because, you know, that was, that was not to be done. And so, at some level, she's feeding out 
you know, she's feeding that, that desire. She can't fan it completely, right? She can't beat the flame. Now, so the scene in the book where she essentially helps him figure things out in a pretty pivotal way, he never talks about. That's, on my part, a complete fabrication. But it is based upon that type of relationship. So I'm going to give her that moment, right, Um, where she lifts him up in a way that I think she did far more than his father. Yeah, I thought it was really delicate how it was all sort of dealt with. Yeah, especially, like, I think you really painted what a, a strong relationship within a house that is dealing with those kinds of hardships can really be in, like, effectively how they can support each other. Um, yeah, I, I found that a really touching moment. Well, you know, um, um, parental love is is really complicated. I mean, I, I think about my kids, and I know that I have yelled at my kids when they did not deserve to be yelled at. I had a bad day, right? Um, they claim to still love me. So, I mean, I think that that may be just to get money for stuff. I don't know. But they, they <laughs> you know, um, that relationship, uh, when you're in it, is, is oftentimes harder to explain than when you're on the outside seeing it in a way in which you don't have that sort of rich feeling between the characters where it's very easy to look at Santiago's father and say, that's the villain of the story. Uh, And he does play the antagonist. Um, But I I don't think if you ask a hall when he was older, would he call his father a villain? I'd say, I think he would say no, you know? Yeah. No. And let's kind of keep on pushing forward. Uh, I do love that the whole biography is told in graphic, in graphic format. Can you tell, like, sort of give us a little bit of a breakdown of how you went about creating the whole book and, like, those panels? Like, what what is the process of a graphic novel like? Yeah, so, um, you know, you'll, you'll ask graphic novelists, they'll give you a zillion different answers to this question. So for me, yeah. what I had to do figure out first was what uh, Santiago was going to look like. Uh, and so I spent, I mean, I really did. It was, it was a work that was going on in the background of other projects. I spent over a year doing character designs. I've got, you know, books and books and books full of different ways to approach his look. How old was he going to be? Eventually, I settled on um, the way he looks through probably, what, two-thirds, three-quarters of the book as a small kid um, mm-hmm. with impish pointed ears and hair that looks like black flame. Um, I do I want... love the fiery hair. Okay, thank the fiery you. hair throughout the whole <laughs> book. Just when he gets so mad and it poofs, it's just it so good. <laughs> thank you. Because that's, to me, that was, that was an important thing that comics can do, right? Comic can do things and visualize things that typically you're going to describe in some way with words and text. Like, oh, he had a fiery personality and you find eight different things words in the thesaurus that means fiery so that you could say it differently each time. But man, if you can just have a head full of flaming hair, that's amazing, right? I mean, so so comics really, uh, one of the things I love about comics is the fact that so much of the story can be carried by the visuals, right? So in that respect, it, it comes like a little bit like film, right? If you have film that's too talky, it's boring, right? Not to say that books are boring. I'm not, I'm not, please don't you know, of maybe course, we'll edit that out later. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, graphic never. novelist hates novels. No, um, <laughs> uh, but, 
but uh but you know comics can allow us uh, allow me to be the actor for the create the characters and the thing that is like nice about graphic novels too is that um when you have those emotional moments uh you control the time through which you move them right if you want to linger on an expression for a while if you want to sort of hold on to that emotional moment, if you want to laugh at something for just a little while longer or come back and revisit that one moment, which I've done with lots of comics, when I've read something that someone has done that is just so good that I can hold it there and just sort of be in that scene in that moment for a while, that is, that is super powerful, I think. So once I have Santiago... Uh, then I start um, reading and doing research. So I wound up reading his memoir twice. The first time through, I just read it. And I sort of got a very general architecture in my head about what was going to happen. And then the second time I read it, I, I read a chapter and then I wrote down everything that I could remember that was important in that chapter, right, for me. So I created mm-hmm. this master document. And there was way too much, just way too much. And so then it became a question of, all right, what are the moments that illustrate the idea that I think is important, right? So the canon, that was an important thing. Him scraping gold paint off the church so that he could make paint to do a painting of St. James, right, who he was named after. Those moments, the interaction with the, 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 the church painter, Uh, where he was told, you'll never be a painter, right? You'll never be an artist. You know, certain key elements that you go through and you say, okay, uh, I want these. I can't have these. I can allude to these, et cetera. Uh, Once you've sort of got that, that's when I start writing. Now, with this one, uh, I was writing and still frustrated that I couldn't squeeze everything in that I wanted to squeeze in. And the other thing, too, was that, you know, with anybody's life, those bits, those are really relevant bits. They don't happen like every month. They happen separated by years. And so, yeah, one of the one of the tricks I came up with was and I had read this in a book called Brazen or got the idea from a book called Brazen, which is about various women. Um, They were like six page long stories of why this this particular woman in history was really important and they covered she covered a lot of of ground so i thought well i'll I'll do a full chapter and then i'll do one of these little micro chapters where we zip ahead i still get a couple important things and then i can have a full chapter once that happens once i've got a script then i just start thumbnailing it in a sketchbook like planning out each page and so i usually for a script i usually get two drawn pages per page of script and then once I've got the plan, I have these big sheets of Bristol and I draw the page at about 10 inches by 15 inches in size. And I draw it in um, blue pencil. Once I've planned out all the scenes, it's like a storyboard really for a film, right? Yeah, Except yeah, a little yeah. bit different. I, I draw it in blue pencil, which is non-photographic. And then I go over that in ink which then when I scan it, et cetera, et cetera, the blue lines appear. So any given page of a book has probably been written 10 times in text. It's been drawn at least three times and inked once. And so you really, 
you really do get to know your pages. So once I've done that, boom, you know, and then presto change, oh, it's all perfect. I don't have to edit anything. Uh, and uh, the book is done. How long in total did it take you to write this one? Uh, well, if you think about the idea, uh, the idea started in 2003. But once I figured it out, which was much later, obviously, it probably took me, in terms of completion, three years, okay, four years. Okay. Well, it shows. It's just there's so many wonderful details throughout the whole book. And just the the symbolism, the relationships that you have between the characters, between Santiago and his daughter, and when he gets pulled out of the mud by those three women, there was just like... <laughs> It's just these like great moments that you've really captured that really propel him. What did you like best about his daughter? Uh, His daughter. I think, I think it was just the, it was sort of that dream sequence that he brings her into. Right. I think you used a really wonderful technique of just because he's trying to explain it to his, I'm not sure how old she was, five, like this kid, she like explained it to me like I'm five kind of a moment where he explains all of his research to her in that whole beautifully painted, beautifully created world that is your brain, you know? I think that was, and just she was so there and so present and so ready to learn. Right. Thank you. Because that's, that was the goal, right? At, At some point as a science communicator who writes for kids, Um, One of the things I've discovered is they are way smarter than we give them credit for. I I absolutely agree. Super way smarter. And so, you know, um, not not on this book, but there have been times when I've really, you know, I've had to push editors to say, no, no, we can we can put this in. Now, Margaret, she's the best editor. She's amazing. So we we (laughs) were on the same page all the time. But yeah, so for me, when I go places and I interact with kids, I understand that they're not going to be the same place as my college students, but on the other hand, I also understand they're going to be way more enthusiastic and they are going to be, frankly, and I love my college kids too. Gosh, I'm talking bad about everybody. Um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) um, My college kids will be the first to admit that they are not going to shoot their hand up and ask questions every other Mm -hmm. minute, but you go to an elementary school and they sure do. They got tons of questions. And you know what? They ask those simple questions that are really hard to answer. And so kids are great at that. Yeah. And so their brains are right there looking for the answers. And, you know, uh, do you have to explain it a little more simply? Sure. Can you give them all the details? No. Can you give them more than we usually give them credit for? Absolutely. And the thing is about kids, I think, in comics too. Um, When you're reading through a comic, uh, like a science comic, let's say I throw in a term, you know what they'll do if they don't know a word is? They'll do the same thing my college kids do, which is they just keep reading. (laughs) Now, for the college kids, it's a little frustrating. You're like, oh, go look that up. I don't have to define every term. But kids, they'll just say, well, I don't know what that word is. But if there's enough there to keep them engaged, they'll keep going. And presumably they'll read it again. And maybe the second time through context cues, other things, maybe they're going to pick up that word. Maybe they don't. Maybe they go ask their parent what that word means, but they'll stick with it. And so for me, when I'm writing one of these things, I don't want to shy away from some of those more complicated things. All I know is 
that I just got to give enough bathroom humor or silliness periodically to keep you keep them anchored, right? And they'll let me get away with some stuff. And then what happens is then it becomes a book they can grow into. You know, at least that's absolutely those are those are the wild aspirations that are zinging around in my brain. I don't know if I'm actually achieving any of that, but internal Jay is very proud of himself. (laughs) I think you're achieving it (laughs) if it means anything. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, my next question, Mm -hmm. which love came first for you, art or science? Well, that's a. That is a tough one because in some respects, uh, so, you know, my mom has drawings that I did when I was three. I don't remember doing them. Um, Fair. Very fair. And I loved dinosaurs since I was three. For me, art initially uh, was a way of bringing dinosaurs to life. Like you can go to Barnes and Noble now and they, they have a shelf of dinosaur books, right? Beautifully illustrated gorgeous encyclopedic things you know and when i was a kid and a dinosaur lover they were you know scratched on papyrus and pieces of wood you know (laughs) charcoal drawings that you might get from your grandmother or something cave paintings you yeah that's right i mean they they we didn't have that kind of stuff we had had two or three books right and you know they always drew the t-rex and the triceratops coming at each other but they never really showed the real battle with the t-rex you know maybe sinking his teeth into the back of the triceratops with triceratops goring that's what i wanted to see and the only way i was going to see that was if i drew them and so drawing for me became a way to bring those things into the world now did third and fourth grade Jay think about it in those terms? Absolutely not. But that really, as I look in retrospect, I drew to, to, to bring things into existence, right? To uh, bring characters that I imagine into existence or to make my own Spider-Man comic where he does what I want him to do, you know, um, to, to make dinosaurs that do the things that I'm interested in seeing. And so for me, it, it becomes this exercise of world building and sort of allowing my imagination to trickle out of my head. Because at some point, you know, it's one thing to tell your mom and dad, hey, mom and dad, I'm imagining this picture of T-Rex biting into a triceratops. But it's a completely different experience to be able to show it to them, right? And yeah. So I think that for me, it's, it's difficult, but I would guess that initially art was in service of my interest in science. All right. All right. So in a way I can see some connections between you and Santiago, like, yes, you're a biology professor and a cartoonist. And I like how you said, like, bringing this to like light, like bring this out of your head, mm-hmm. able to show other people in the same way that Santiago was about these neurons and about these things that he found in the brain. He mm-hmm. drew them so that he could show them to other people. Uh, oh, that's very good. Yes, it's great. Yeah. Great observation. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I, I really like, like, are there any other kind of connections that you personally felt to Santiago besides obviously your, uh, your whole well, let's, ideology let's start, here? <laughs> let's start with your, your, your observation, because it's a really beautiful one um, in, the way, in terms of how you put it, because 
if you think about Santiago at the time he was working in, they didn't have, well, they did have cameras, but they didn't have cameras you could strap onto a microscope, right? They didn't have microscopes that you plug into computers, which is, you know, common fare now. So he would take these pieces of tissue and he would paint them with these different dyes and then he would see them. And the only way other people could see them would be if he took those slides to science conferences and set them up, which he did, or if he drew them. And the drawing that he did pulled those neurons, pulled that research into a world in which he could share these ideas. And to say that they were transformative is an understatement. So, um, you know, before Cajal, there was this debate. Was the brain made up of individual cells or was it a network, a network of tubes like the circulatory system, right? Um, and he clearly demonstrated with his images and his slides that they were separate cells. And the thing that's cool about that is that separate cells, they can change the way they talk to each other, which means you can learn, right? Tubes don't really do that very well. And so when we say that he was the sort of the father of modern neuroscience, that's what we mean. That, that sounds like a simple discovery, but that whole discovery and its dissemination was completely dependent upon his pictures, his drawings, and his ability to render them so well because he was trained as a kid, right? So as far as other connections, um, I also am secretly a Nobel Prize winner. Uh, <laughs> I haven't told anybody that yet. I want kind of bashful. Um, That's amazing. You, <laughs> isn't it? Like, isn't it? You heard it. How do we not have quotes. that? How do we not have that in your mind? You know, bio? I just haven't put it on my CV yet. Um, <laughs> you know, I've always been fascinated with uh, people uh, who have interest in science and art. Like you know, another classic one, Osama Tezuka, who um, was created Astro Boy right? And several other fantastic manga. Uh, he was trained, he was a, he had an MD. He was trained as a doctor. Uh, he never practiced, um, but he was also a phenomenal artist. And his work is informed by that. I mean, you get a lot of science in the work that he does. Uh, he has a series called Blackjack, which is about a surgeon uh, who's a black marketer, an unlicensed surgeon. Um, and there's some really interesting biology in there. Um, so, so I find that I find that interesting, and the reason I find it interesting is because um, the current sorting hat of modern education says those two things should not go together, right? Um, that when you go to school, uh, we sort you. We say, well, you're very good at math. Math is down that hall, or you know, you're quite good at art. Uh, you you go down that hall, or you're good at science. I mean. For some bizarre reason, we we seem to want to take what I imagine is this single crystal of human creativity, and we want to fracture it. We want to take it apart. Um, my example I always talk about is um, are the Lacoe caves, right? You've got these painted caves, these cave paintings, and um, we know that they weren't decoration because people didn't live in there. So they went in there, and, and what do those paintings show us? Well, they, they show us easily identifiable species from that time period, okay? So maybe it's natural history. Um, it shows humans hunting them in the way that uh, humans used to hunt. So maybe it's anthropology. 
but it also shows fictional creatures, demons and devils and stuff like that. Uh, so maybe it's religion. Maybe it's fiction. Not that I did not mean to put religion and fiction side by side. Okay. I'm going to get angry letters about that too. So, but there's <laughs> storytelling there, right? And so it's all of those things. It's art, it's storytelling, it's science, it's, it's human creativity, human endeavor, the human mind seeking to understand the world in multiple ways. And that's one of the things I really love about um, graphic novels, especially graphic novels about science, is that they sort of bring those things together, the storytelling, the science, and the art, right? They, in my mind, they're my, I'm attempting to sort of reunite those things and show people and show readers, show kids, show kids that they're not necessarily separate. And that not only are they not necessarily separate, but that when you put them together, we do the science better. We do the art better, right? And so that for me has been, you know, a big driver. No, for sure. And this just gives me even more fodder for my argument to to keep going forward with STEAM instead of just STEM. Adding I, that I, A. I, I, mean, I think the A is important. It's so important. <laughs> One of the things that I have a colleague in, 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 in philosophy, Wade Rogers, Roberts, and uh, what he said once, I paraphrase now all over the place, because he's a, a bioethicist. Um, Right. So he's interested in uh-huh. a lot of the questions surrounding things like COVID, et cetera, et cetera. And he has said uh, the problems of humanity require the humanities. Right. Look, uh-huh. we have we have absolutely seen a need uh, for better training in science and math. We're not very good at it. We used to be great, but for whatever mm-hmm. reason. Not so much anymore. That's not because teachers aren't trying. That's, I mean, there are a whole bunch of other systemic issues that are at play there. But uh, it's important. The problem is that the people who will be deploying the science and the math and the medicine are people. People are flawed. They make mistakes. They have ethnic, racial, uh, gender biases, right? And the humanities are critical for us being aware when those biases take place that, that make us want to ask the questions, are we being fair? What does it mean to be fair? What should we, should we do this or should we do that in terms of how we handle administration of medicine, doing the science, et cetera, et cetera. So science is not mm, this um, disembodied objective force of good. It is a force that can be used for good. It can be also yeah. used to make atomic bombs, right? And so we need the A in STEM because it introduces the importance of thinking about our humanity and how that science and math and technology is all embedded socially in what we are. That's a great way to say that. Well, Thanks. Awesome. I've been practicing for weeks. Ah. I'm so proud of you. Thank oh, you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> well, I have one more question before we sign off. Yep. But uh, were there any interesting tidbits about Santiago's life that ultimately didn't make it into the book? Yeah, well, I mean, a bunch. Like, like the fact that he had a gun uh, as a ah, kid. Yeah. Um, you know, he had these periods of mania, 
where he would he would play chess games and he would play six chess games at once at the at the local you know uh uh tavern uh he had a phase where he was into bodybuilding right in fact in his Body, memoir, like frankenstein huh no like bodybuilding like oh bodybuilding muscles <laughs> like lifting weights like uh, Popeye. got it Yes. No, no, he was not bad bodies, actually. Uh, <laughs> half of his children are zombies. Uh, <laughs> um, that, that, that's another fact that I didn't manage to squeeze in. Um, and so, so, but uh, I think one of my favorites is that as an adult, he would write fictional stories to explain science. He's like so, you. Yeah, well, uh, let's say well, I was less like fictional. Him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so that didn't make it in per se, um, but that was when I read that in his memoir. That's when things really sort of, I felt a, a super strong connection to him because he was out there, and I've read those stories, and they're sort of okay, right? Uh, he got the Nobel Prize in medicine for a reason, um, but it was, <laughs> it was so exciting to see now and and i i only sort of kind of managed to work it into the story so he had this one story where this this person is frustrated with how unimportant and uninteresting the world is and so this this being of magical power gives this person microscopic vision and so suddenly this guy can see bacteria all around him he sees this a wondrous world that he had no idea existed and I wanted to do something like that with like goggles and stuff in that last chapter with his daughter. I didn't, I just had them imagining it, but that whole passage where he's with his daughter and he's walking her through the mind and showing her elements of the, of the nerves and whatnot is sort of my uh, very light reference to that story that he wrote. I like that a lot. Well, awesome. Well, lastly, because this is the guest book. How would you like to sign our guest book, Jay? I think I would say, I'm Jay Hostler. Let the world amaze you. Thanks for talking to me today. Thank you for talking to me. It was a blast. <laughs> it was. <laughs>